0: Alright, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. Wow, did I just say my name weird? I'm Mark Maron. This is my show, WTF. Welcome to it. How are you? Everybody okay? Thanks for all the excited feedback about the James Franco episode. Seems that people really dug it. It was good. Nice long one. Dug in. Did a lot of listening. I've been doing a lot of listening lately more listening than I'm generally known for. Usually I'm known for listening and interjecting. And now, now I'm just experimenting with just listening. We should all do some listening. Anyway, there's actually a sign in my garage that says what people need is a good listening to someone sent that to me. It was a gift. I took it as a gift and as a, not a passive aggressive thing. Super fan Amy years ago, I think sent that to me. I think it was her, but, uh, yeah, so that's just up there, and, and now I'm referring to it. Because at some point, I'm going to have to dismantle this shrine of listening here at the garage, but not soon. Doesn't seem like it's going to be soon. I'm here now. I'm here in it. I'm doing the show. Today on the show, uh, I'm going to talk to uh, my old friend Judd Apatow. He's got a special. And Loudon Wainwright, who also Judd is used in movies. They're not together. Two different talks. But that's, uh, that's what's ahead. That's what's ahead for you. But first, Europe. Hello, Europe. I'm coming to see you this spring, Europe. Monday, April 16th in London, England. Thursday, April 19th in Stockholm, Sweden. Sunday, April 22nd in Oslo, Norway. Monday, April 23rd in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And Thursday, April 26th in Dublin, Ireland. It's it's my few parts of the world tour. Go to WTFPod.com and check out the tour page to get venue and ticket information. All right? I'm coming for a little while. I don't. That is the tour I planned. I want to go see some places. I want to see the world before it burns. I'd like to see some parts of the world before they're gone. I'd like to get out and enjoy my life now that I've worked so hard all these years before it goes away. See, I'm trying to be. That's a, those two tones. That's the upbeat, and then I, I just undercut it with the uh, with the uh, terrified. Oh my god terrified but not uh but not running like oh no unbelievable but uh yeah so it's been an interesting week i haven't talked to you since last week but i think i recorded that before uh most of california was on fire and before i uh, was nominated for a critics choice award see how it comes the yin and the yang hey is that fire going to consume my new house i don't know i don't know if it is do I, it's time to spend some time watching fire apps, watching fire maps, watching for when the fire comes. I feel horrible for people who lost property, lost pets, lost homes, not in that order necessarily, uh, whose lives were compromised by these fires. But there are fires all over fucking California. And it's terrifying because the brain just seeks to make like, I, you know, there's always been fires, right? not like this just like i don't know a fire might break out in the fucking garage in three minutes it's just like spontaneous fires but most of the people i know up north and uh and around uh people i come in contact with at work uh their homes are okay but again uh uh i i I hope everything's okay out there for everyone i feel bad for people that uh that got compromised by these fires but it's like this can't is it the is this normal now like I've always been kind of nervous about California in general. I, I can't, I want to run, man. But then it's like nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And I believe there are some places to run and there are a few places to hide. But uh, I dug in, I dug in, I got a new place. And uh, I guess if it's going to go down, it's going to go down. But I've actually done jokes about this, about these fires and about you know, years ago. That's just crazy. I went out and uh, Sarah, the painter, got some emergency kits. We got that. I guess I'm going to have to get a generator one way or the other. You better be preparing for the end of something. And I'm not saying that in a tone of terror or existential despair. It's a practical term. Prepare for the end. All right. On the other side of the fires, I was nominated for a Critics Choice Award. Yeah, I'm excited. uh, A Critics Choice nomination. I look, folks, for me, I didn't anticipate being nominated for anything ever. You know, I thought the one shot we had was a Peabody, but they they didn't they they poo pooed it. The Peabodys poo pooed us. I guess I thought that was the one that would that would have been the one possible, the one window of opportunity to get any accolades. I certainly didn't anticipate getting any accolades for acting or for anything for stand up. I I don't know. I'm not being falsely humble. It's just like looking at my life. It just was not part of any of the uh the possibilities but so so the critics choice award is a is a welcomed excitement and i am uh grateful for it and i'm excited about it and uh glow the show got several Allison brie got one betty gilpin got a nomination i think the the show got a nomination so everybody on set was excited and we needed that excitement over the last few days because uh we were we were shooting the show up in pomona on a set that uh God I don't want to spoil anything. Would it spoil anything? I but why, what maybe it'll just provide it'll provide suspense. We were on a, uh, a hospital set in Pomona for two days, uh, 12 hour shoots running well into the evening, one or two in the morning. So it was nice to have the extra added excitement of uh, of knowing that where the show is getting this recognition. It was uh, it was fun times. I'm trying you know on a day-to day basis for whatever reason. I experienced a great deal of uh, dread and terror in my head. And I i know many of you know this, and I'm not experiencing it right now, but I actually had a moment on set the other night where it's like, look, I wait around a long time to do three lines. On Friday night, we had shot all day. I was there, we were there from like 12 to one in the morning, and we did. I did one scene in the morning, which was a fun scene, no lines, but it was a fun. It was me and Allison and Betty and Chris Lowell. And then uh, pretty much I waited around like eight hours about eight hours and they did everyone's coverage all the women were there you know all 13 14 of them and we covered everything except my point you know my coverage with where the cameras on me it was the last shot of the night of a 12 and a half hour night at one in the morning and uh and and for some reason instead of um feeling like well fuck, man what kind of gig is this what what is all this waiting around this acting business I just locked in and I'm like make it a good few minutes man this is what you wait for this is what acting is enjoy this minute and a half and just you know act the shit out of it I was doing a, a, a beat with the all of them and I had a beat with Betty who's great great actress and, and we just had the moment and it felt very rewarding that's a step in the right direction <laughs> it wasn't like man was that worth waiting for I'm trying to tell you that I turned a corner and I, I I've grown to appreciate, Hey, if this is the window, if this is the moment, if this is where I get to act on this episode, if these two lines are where it's at for the day, then lean in, man. And I guess that's pretty good advice for anybody. Like if you have those moments where you got to show up and do your job, you know, fully focused, you know, if for even if it's only for a half an hour that it's expected out of you and you spend the other 12 hours, you know, looking at a computer or, pretending to work make the best out of that make the best out of that half hour make the best out of that five minutes man because it's all burning everything is on fire oh my god so judd came by because he's got a special judd apatow the return premieres tomorrow december 12th on netflix and we got into it It's always good to see Judd. It's always good to have a chat, and it always ends up longer than we think, and it always ends up pretty engaged, because, uh, you know, we do what we do. So this is me uh, hanging out with Judd Apatow for a bit. That's the thing about your special. Let's start there. Technique-wise, you bold motherfucker used a wireless. There was
1: no aversion to using a fucking wireless. At least I didn't go with the Janet Jackson, uh, you know McDonald's uh, wireless. No, you can't on the do head. that. No, no, no. Of course not.
0: But I don't trust wireless mics. I'm like some weird old timey guy. <laughs> like if I don't know that it's connected to something, and they always seem bulky, and they don't slide yes. in and out properly. And you just went yeah. ahead
1: and used it. Well, I uh, I have a different issue, which is. I am not that professional as a comedian and I will constantly trip over the cord. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you knew that. You're like I prefer not to have more mess up here than necessary. I I, I literally find myself at the comedy store tripping over the cord so often that I, when they said we have a cordless I was like, "Yes, thank you." <laughs> didn't thank you even you. think <laughs> about
0: it. So I you know, I watched you work on a lot of the material for uh, for months and months and um, and then I, I I didn't know like a you know, a third of it. Where were we hiding that
1: stuff? Did you just pull it out that night? Well, what's interesting is, you know, when you do the improv and the comedy store, there's so much material that just doesn't work there. Uh huh. Uh, You know, longer stories, things that take time when you need people to pay more attention. Right. You know, there was always larger hunks that that worked in theaters or places where people were paying attention. Oh, so
0: you were working that stuff out elsewhere.
1: Yeah, certain bits where I thought, well this is an 11 minute the poem bit. bit. Yes, the poem bit. I read a I read a poem that I wrote when I was uh 14 when my parents were getting divorced which yeah. I, I stumbled onto and it's so sad but makes me laugh so much I wrote poems in exactly the same cadence
0: that there was a, a weird kind of
1: naive social importance yes to what you're saying <laughs> and the D- Dr. Seuss rhyme scheme yeah but you had a little <laughs> free verse there there was it was it wasn't all Dr. Seuss-y. what I found interesting about finding this poem one is that the poem is basically saying, I'm in an enormous amount of pain, but maybe this pain will one day make me a good comedian. And I wrote that when I was 14. That's basically what the poem is about. <laughs> you already knew. <laughs> but, you know, when I was a kid, I had this sense that I was supposed to be good at certain things if I wanted to be in comedy. Yeah. And so... And I tried everything. I, I tried juggling pins. I, I tried to write sketches. I just took a quick pop at everything. Well, you
0: know, what were the other ones? Guitar playing? Guitar
1: like... playing I was terrible at. You know, I, I like be... that you went with the juggling. Did you figure out how to get the balls in the air? I could juggle the pins. Then I bought the fire pins no, that could oh, come light on. on fire. And then never worked up the courage to light them.
0: <laughs> and that's why it took you so long to make a
1: special. Exactly. <laughs> I was so afraid. And then one day I wrote a poem. Uh-huh. And it's it's interesting. It's a yeah. real window into how my brain works uh, or worked at the time. But the I find the most interesting part is I never wrote a poem again. Right. So I wrote this long poem. And then in my head, I must have thought, yeah, you're not good at this. Yeah. And stopped, which is a metaphor for my stand-up career. <laughs> you know, my brain wants to shut it down. But <laughs> oddly-
0: uh, and I, you know, because I wrote poetry in college, and I took it seriously at some point. Yeah, even after high school, even after my big Ginsbergian uh, assault on uh, on the the world we live in at fourteen, um, I, you know, I I I think that writing comedy is poems. I think that jokes are poetic. There's rhythm. There's there, there's there's a, a turn of phrase. There's yes. a lot of things that are are very poetic elements.
1: Yeah, I agree. Every once in a while, when something's worded perfectly. It feels a little poetic. This is the one that is so truthful, but I was proud of this thought, and it's so simple. But I talk about how my fifteen-year-old just seems so unhappy to be in the house sometimes with yeah. me and my wife, right? And and I I say, you know, when uh, you have four people, it is a family. When it is three, it is a a child observing a weird couple. (laughs) That's as close as I get to poetry. It just says it all. It's like a haiku. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh,
0: So, I mean, arguably, I think that you committed your life to poetry. That's the way I'm going to look at it. I like it. I mean, I would have liked to have been a poet, but where do you really go with that? You know what I mean? It's like maybe you got a couple books that nine people read and you teach somewhere. That's the best that you could hope for.
1: Yeah, that always leads to the, the debate. How many people do you need to watch your stuff or like your stuff? well, you well, I mean, you know the answer to that. I need it to work in China. <laughs> I need it to work in Russia. <laughs> That's the funny thing of the business now is everything about the business is like, will things work overseas and and you get in these meetings where there's a subtle subtext which is like, you know is there anything you could chuck in it like a, a, a <laughs> an actress from another country that might bring in the spanish crowd and then when you try it it yeah. never works you always bomb in the country of the foreigner you put in <laughs> you've the tried that you've done that well just in the sense that sometimes we work with people from other countries because we love them, not not to right, do it for right, a marketing right. reason, but I've never felt a bump in that country oh because <laughs> I, I had the Russian guy in a few scenes. <laughs> but they do want you to think that way. And they also uh you know are are trying to reach people that don't understand verbal humor. Yeah. So there's also this feeling generally yeah. that you know, movies work best when you're blowing up shit.
0: Blowing up shit or just like very broad physical comedy or expressions?
1: Uh, yes. it's And, and you and you, yeah. you think, I don't know how to reach people in other countries. And every once in a while, a movie blows up around the world. You yeah. have no idea why. Uh, we made this movie um, called Begin Again. Yeah. Uh, and it was a Mark Ruffalo uh, movie that John Carney, the guy who made Once Made. Yeah. And it did okay in the United States. In, in South Korea. Yeah makes 25 million dollars that movie it's gigantic gigantic in one country on earth south korea loves Kira knightley in a musical uh, and we don't know why you, you can't try to appeal because you'll never figure There's it no, out
0: you can't you can't manufacture lightning in a bottle There's it just no, happened
1: there was no part of the process where i thought south korea is gonna love
0: this, this is gonna kill there <laughs> we got an ace in the hole in south korea uh so I like that the special and that you know your whole approach to stand up, given your your twenty year hiatus, was yes. it? Uh, it was yeah, twenty two years. A twenty two year hiatus yeah. <laughs> from when you did the young comedian special, nineteen what? Ninety two. Ninety two, and then you go on, you make a billion dollars, you make a lot of movies, TV shows, you write jokes for other comics, and now finally you feel confident enough. <laughs> <laughs> to get back to what you started out doing, but the reason I bring it up is because I thought you were very humble and you had a lot of humility around uh, the approach. You didn't come in swaggering you you no. were you were sort of like, I know where I'm at' I'm, you know i' I'm, I'm a i'm a, I'm a strong feature at this point
1: <laughs> I always say that the uh the only show since I started pursuing stand-up aggressively uh-huh. in uh, 2014 where I really felt like I did badly. And got nervous was one night at the comedy cellar when you walked in the room. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Come on. I got really self-conscious and and I had just started, maybe I'd been doing it a few months again. Me? And you walked in the room and on stage all I thought was, Marin knows this sucks. <laughs> and I didn't feel that way with, you know, Ray Romano watching or wow. n- anybody watching. Dice Clay was watching me one night. I just for some reason oh, i oh. i felt so connected to you that he the voice in my head that's telling me that i suck is also Mark Maron's voice. <laughs> so when I finally was doing well enough that you would indicate to me, like, it's going good. You got some good stuff. I really relaxed generally. <laughs> Just recently? Just recently. You'd be like, stuff's looking good. Or I, you know, the best compliment is when you hear from someone else, like, Maren said you got some good shit. I'm like, oh, thank God. Or you're like, Attell said you're funny now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. you got one of those? Oh, that was a big one. That's the, a huge one. The Attel like yeah, that, that's That's the one we all want exactly for him to say anything about you but I you know when I started doing it again yeah it's it's so funny because I was so into stand-up from the time I was 17 to 24 but really from the time I was 10 to 24 that when I stopped I was pretty burnt out at just doing seven days a week of nothing but thinking about jokes writing jokes watching comedians so I didn't even look at comics for a decade and only maybe around 2010 11 did I go what's everybody doing i didn't yeah. even go to the improv right. for 15 years probably right really even to watch so i didn't even and then i started feeling like even as a comedy producer i should know what's happening yeah but
0: that sounds like somebody who like you know quit something like that was hurting them and and uh, but they had no control it's like an addiction like i can never go back to where that's happening
1: i just <laughs> lost interest really not it was an anger i felt just bored of watching it and and then slowly i'm trying to think who was i think that's a grown-up thing who was the comedian that got me excited again i don't i started watching hannibal a little bit yeah and he was making me laugh i think watching uh you know you know there was a few people that i thought Wow, like Maria Bamford. Oh, I, I, yeah. I remember hearing her on your show. Yeah. You you drove somewhere with yeah, her. Yeah, right, yeah. And I was really taken by that. Oh, yeah. And, that you, was... and you
0: not seen her before that? No. Oh man.
1: And then I started looking that up and then I and then I realized, oh, there's some amazing yeah, people right. who are a lot better than the people when I started. And different
0: you know, I mean, yeah, yeah sure, There was, there's always some slouches around. Yes. But, you know, there were some great guys then, too, yeah. when we started or, like, whenever that was. 92, you said the Young Comedian Special was? Yes. And I, so I started in 89, I think, officially, mm-hmm. you know, making money. Yeah. 80, probably 87, 88, doing it. But there were good people around, but there was, you know, the remnants of the road, of that first wave. Yeah. And there were a lot of those kind of, you know, uh, mid-level headliners yeah. with, the, you know, rap closers <laughs> yes. or somersaults. But there was always like, you know, there were some people in, in the generation before us where you're like, well, that was really unique. Those guys are really sure. sort of doing something completely different. And there's a lot of them around now. I mean,
1: back then it really was... Hicks, you go see Bill Hicks for that for that thing. He he was singular in that. Stephen Wright was singular in that in his thing. Goldflete, yeah. When you would go see him in the late '80s, and of course Kinnison, who to this day I've never seen anyone more exciting to watch. Yeah, just
0: menacing. Just to see electric.
1: To see Kinnison. Uh, before the crowd knew who he was, was the most exciting comedy you've ever seen. And it really can't be recaptured. Like, people walking in a room not knowing this guy's coming and not knowing the joke, the point of view, and he starts screaming at them. Yeah. The place, it yeah. you know, would erupt. Half the place would walk out. Yeah. And... There's no one like that now. It's just an
0: exciting panic. <laughs>
1: you, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Well, I, I actually, for some reason, I, on uh, on the random thing on my iPod in the car, the the album went on. I have, like, that first album, Hotter Than Hell, or Louder Than Hell, you can't, it's not on CD, so someone's got to rip it. And yeah. someone ripped it at some point and gave it to me. And I listened to the whole thing through, and I've always been a guy that listens to that once a year. And I had experiences with him. And then, like, this was the first time where I was sort of like, oh, that was really kind of wrong-minded and shitty, that one. <laughs>
1: Well, it's guess, all so awful. Yeah. I, I, like, I remember laughing. I mean, I knew it was, but like, it, it, I
0: felt the slight offense for the first time. So like, you know, he was definitely a monster, but that it, the the intensity and the, the balls of it all, you don't see that much.
1: I, it felt like, I guess looking back, if you, you were to try to define the Sam Kennison character, it would be the world has broken him. Yes. And so in a way- and the world will pay. <laughs> And so you enjoyed it from that point of view that he was, it it was a person in meltdown. So his opinions, which were so wrong at times, you never felt like the joke was he believes it. You felt like this is what happens when you get broken cautionary tale yes you just right. completely lose your mind and start screaming at yeah. starving people yeah. to go to the food yeah. it doesn't make any he's sense he's at all
0: punching way down yes. punching <laughs> as down as you can
1: punch exactly he's so fr- <laughs> because i always took it like it's the frustration that life is unkind yeah that makes you go what are we gonna do i don't know go to the fucking food yeah yeah uh, right but it doesn't make any sense at all that,
0: that way he captures that whole thing with where it's like you know you're sitting there eating what you pulled together like he he phrased it like he was just sitting in front of the television set with some shitty dinner that he pulled together for himself and there's a starving guy on
1: tv a starving kid and it just just infuriated him (laughs) and and isn't that just a cover for an inability to feel sadness that you do feel so sad that you just start screaming nonsense because you can't go to that vulnerable place that just wants to cry about that kid yeah you're
0: broke your heart broken now it's exploding Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> all over everybody. Unless we're just totally wrong, and he was just a,
0: a monster. Prick. <laughs> yeah, yeah was definitely there was some of that. <laughs> but but okay, but like what I was saying though, like I was impressed, and I I entered the uh, the 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 Apatow return you know, seeing you around as, you know, like I was, a, not that I needed to defend you, but I'm like, wait, wait people were surprised. I'm yes. like, he was writing jokes for some of our favorite comics when he was a child. <laughs> what, you, like, you're gonna, what, you think he's going to have a hard time putting together an act? You know, I mean, did you ever, did you think, I mean, as a joke writer, and you drew from your life, you know, very frankly, that you were going to have a hard time putting together
1: an act? It, it i think what it is is that i didn't think about it too much i just slowly slid into it yeah i think what helped me a lot in doing it again yeah one was i didn't need to do it to pay my rent right and i didn't need to beg for spots so i was very lucky that i had enough recognition that clubs yeah. would put put me up as a freak show anyway at least but in no, the dude, beginning. But you're not like Steve-O. I mean, you're Judd Apatow. You're like... <laughs> but just, there was something amusing about seeing me right. attempt to do it. Yeah. The other thing that helped me a lot is I didn't know who any of the comics were. So when I started going up at the cellar, yeah. I didn't know almost anybody. So I didn't have the fear of everybody because... At the time, I didn't understand how much better they were than me. Or, yeah, where
0: they stood in the hierarchy. Yes. Like, you know.
1: I didn't know, like, oh, that's how funny... You know, Keith Robinson is. Oh, yeah. And I should, you know, yeah. I should be nervous around him sure. because he yeah. kills yeah. every single night. Yeah. And all those guys, you know, Greer Barnes and. Wow. You know, Greer Barnes. Greer. <laughs> you know, all these people were like, were so funny. And then I yeah. would slowly watch them. But at the very beginning, I just hadn't watched comedy in a long time. So when I would go in and I would sit at the table with all the comics, I didn't even know their acts to right. know who I was sitting with sure. most of the time. Right. And then by the time I figured out who everyone was, I had enough of my sea legs to not be too embarrassed, but I was embarrassed, like though this is kind of weird that I'm uh attempting to do it, but I've always felt like everyone realized that I love it so much but you but you were this is but you were a comic, yes,
0: I mean that's the weird thing is like I would have thought that you know sitting down with them that 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 you would have thought that they were projecting like, what does this guy need to do this for? Why is he here?
1: i didn't I didn't get that from people, the, oh, well then I hit it well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, but you know what maybe that was what people were thinking, just just what is happening right now? every once in a while I would see someone get quiet, you know, I'd sit at the comedians table, just someone very chatty would just stop talking. And I thought, God, I hope I, you know, my presence here isn't making people self-conscious. Uh,
0: right. But then slowly... You don't want them walking, you know, going home at 2.30 going like, I fucked up with
1: appetite. <laughs> Which is so you not never, why I'm there at all. Right. Uh, but but everyone was so nice. I really fell in love with everyone there. And, you know, Esty uh, and Nome, they yeah. just were very inviting. The club was excited to have me uh, work there. And then... I worked my ass off. I wrote, you know, a, a you ton did. of jokes to try to. I tried to be worthy of it. I really respected all the the comedians and thought I got to get good enough that I could. Yeah. I, I could think I'm as I'm. You know, I'm the same level of these people. But,
0: like I'm, I was watching the special, and you were just. It was all loaded up with like little one line pieces that I never heard before. And di- I didn't get it all the way to the end. Did you do the Cosby bit? I do. Yeah, near the end. Like anything like yes. that. That I love that bit, and I love the uh, the all the kids stuff. I mean, and and to sort of admit. Well, and, and you sort of had to, because you weren't going to go up and, and just do, you know, detached jokes. Yes. But you do, you, you know, you present your life as it is. Yes. You know, I am a rich producer of film and television. <laughs> I live a, ve- a very,
1: you know, uh, gilded life. Is that the word? Yes. Uh, but, you know you know, problems remain. <laughs> well, that is the one thing that you notice, and I'm sure from your new uh, perch and mm-hmm. your new home, you will yeah. notice as well <laughs> that uh, that once you can pay your bills, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I always say this that you know people who have succeeded and what they've tried to do and who have a little money, they they spend their whole lives thinking when I, when this happens, yeah. then happiness will arrive, and then when it happens, you realize, oh, I'm still unhappy. It's me well it's yeah
0: but but i don't know that i ever thought that happiness would arri- arrive and but i do feel there's some things i don't have to worry about like yeah. i used to that used to consume me yes but i mean but when you really think about how is that going to change you to have but i i don't know you know i i'm i you know i, I am getting a new house and i walk around it and i'm like it, it feels different like but you know i'm 54 yeah. you, you know <laughs> you know like i you know i better do something to 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 feel like that i've i've arrived somewhere it's hard to
1: think that uh you deserve it, you know that. Right. That you've worked a long time, and I'm allowed to have the room, you know, with the big TV. Yeah. And I'm going to work hard on the sound.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: like but you do think I don't deserve this? You there is that you know fraud. Why is that?
0: I, well, I don't fucking know why that is. I mean, I I, I feel that a little bit, but I, I I guess for me it's more like you know I like, do I need it. It's not, it's not yeah. even. It's, exactly. It's not like deserve. It's sort of like, you know, I'm okay here, but this house is falling the fuck apart and I've not even <laughs> yeah. fixed anything.
1: And like when I empty it, I, I, it's going to be like they should just demo it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, there's a point of pride in not being an asshole in the nice house. Yeah. And that's a that's a, d- a difficult thing. I, I don't think I use much of it in in the special, but I do talk a, a lot about People who always want more, like if you're the Koch brothers and you have $35 billion and you are obsessed with getting all of these congressmen to push for a tax cut so you could make $2 billion more of which you'll never spend a penny on. What is going on in your mind? What are your values? At the cost of people's lives. Yes. The quality of life. The yes. country. The globe. At food the stamps. Earth. Could we get could we get rid of food stamps so yeah. I can get a, a tax cut? And and I think that is what's driving all of us mad is that Trump is a symbolic of very wealthy people and it's not enough. Yeah. And as someone who you know, doesn't have to feel terrible if I get a parking ticket. I don't get it at all because other than sending my kids to school and having a place to live, there's nothing to spend money on. Right. All you really spend money on generally is you might go on a vacation yeah. and you might get the extra appetizer and that's about <laughs> it. Like why do you need like why does Trump need to say I'm worth ten billion? If he was worth nine hundred million it's yeah, what, what the fuck is the difference? Well, he
0: he also has mental problems, and he needs yes. to win, and he's a bully, and there's yeah, <laughs> and 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 he seems to be at the beginning stages of some degenerative mental condition. You
1: think that's it? People are beginning to say that openly, like something's happening. Well, apparently, his father had
0: it, and his sister yeah. is has it now, uh, is completely incapacitated with uh, degenerative mental. Illness.
1: Reagan, uh, you know, ran the country for several several so, yeah, years. Yeah, just push him out there. Remember Make those you. Iran uh, Contra uh, uh, interviews he did. Uh uh-uh. He he had to do a deposition. Yeah, not good. It wasn't. It wasn't the best shining <laughs> moment on a hill. Well,
0: uh, so the special looked good. You do. Well, you did. Yeah. How many did you shoot? Nine. <laughs>
1: I shot two shows a night for two nights. Okay. Uh, I I shot four shows. Yeah. The night before the first show, in the same theater, I did a warm-up show to get used to the space. So you did five. Uh, Yeah. And I I didn't tape that one. And it went so badly.
0: Okay.
1: (laughs) Good. And people told me that would happen. But when it happens, when you run the full set-
0: And and you just can't get over
1: the hump? You you, can't- It felt like every joke was starting over. Uh, Yeah, the worst. And some jokes would work, but every joke- And it, it was like- canadian people yeah who were so polite yeah that they just their energy never lifted but no but i thought the thing it looked great who directed it um it was uh, marcus a is he one of your guys uh, he is just a great uh, comedy director who who did pete Holmes special and he does a lot of them and i thought oh, i don't know how to do this and and he did a a, a beautiful yeah job the suit that. was nice uh the suit was nice who, who's, who makes that suit I, I don't know but professionals were involved <laughs> It's my punch punch drunk tie. glove it's a punch drunk glove yeah. suit
0: No but you look goodness suit like I can yep. never like I don't think I could pull a suit off I think my head's too large. I don't know I haven't worn a suit in a long time.
1: I look okay in a suit I look a little bit like an agent but my body mm. is so wrongly shaped it's just I'm very I'm, you know, I, I get a little pear shaped uh-huh. so I decided a few years ago. Uh, and my wife is not thrilled about this. Yeah. That the only shirt I looked good in was a black James Purse polo shirt. I bought 25 of them. Oh, I see you in that a lot. Yeah. And, and I just decided I'm not even going to pretend I look good in other clothes. <laughs> you did wear that a lot. And then <laughs> I lost some weight yeah. so I'd look okay yeah. for the for the special and then right. the second we were done taping just, just put another 10 back on. Did you? Yeah, just start eating again? And it, yeah, I just tossed it all out the window. I've been I got my cholesterol down with, uh, without statins How, by uh, there's a big fight in my house. Is, my wife is against the statins. I know.
0: I I, I got against them too because I don't I don't know really why. But you yeah. know one wants to be on medicine. But uh, I just cut meat and dairy out totally.
1: That's what people <laughs> say. It's all the meat. Yeah. That people think it's everything else. But the, the your cholesterol is very meat driven. I hate any discussion of having to be healthy. Yeah, I don't like that I have to do it. Well, now it's like
0: there's less reason because it doesn't seem like things are gonna go well. <laughs> there's not a positive yes. closure
1: ahead, so you might as well live a little. <laughs> Sometimes when when like I'm watching the news and and yeah. they, and they say, hey, Trump decided to put all the dukes on B one bombers to like be up in the air 24 hours a day. Yeah. I will eat that pint of ice cream, sure. and I'm kind of happy. That the window got smaller. Yeah. No, not...
0: <laughs> I, 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 you know, I wish, I, I think that, you know, sadly it's true. Like, you know, like it is, I, right? <laughs> I, when old people like who I respect die, I'm like, they got out. <laughs> they got out. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Um, thank God they didn't have to see this shit. You know, After yeah. what they lived through. Yes.
1: Like, let them go now. As I get older and I feel closer to death, mm-hmm. I, I get a, a, like a feeling like where I'm excited to die. Yeah. To just get out before, like the environment falls apart, before some other bad thing. I don't happens. know if we're gonna
0: make it, dude. I, I, I might have. We might be a, a, around for it. God damn it! I know what the <laughs> fuck we really thought was. I thought I was gonna get out before the world ended, but I don't know. It used
1: to be, you know, when I was a kid, I would yeah. think they're gonna cure cancer yeah. before I get it. Yeah. And now I'm like, they're not going to. <laughs> but they've done real good with some of them. Really depends yeah. which one you get. And I can't slip out mm-hmm. before the really bad stuff happens. Yeah, it becomes harder to create silly comedy in the face of this. It
0: becomes harder to do anything. Yeah that 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 is pleasurable or not uh, or not requiring because there's part of the things so like we're in an urgent situation yes. and I should be doing something urgently, but you run out of there. The, what what? So then, yeah. like, with that kind of percolating and the news percolating, when you just want to go, like, watch a movie or enjoy something or play some guitar, it's there's a part of you that's sort of like,
1: why, why do this even? Exactly. Why not just sit? <laughs> like, I remember, you know, being home. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kicking, you know, jokes around with uh, Seth and Evan for Pineapple Express. Yeah. Like, oh, it'd be funny if he tries to kick out the windshield of the car <laughs> yeah. and it, his foot just gets stuck. And then we would, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, when they like pitched it, we would just giggle for 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if that kind of moment is possible right now where I, you're I, so lost in the silly uh, fantasy land. I, and I was talking to a, 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 someone about this for hours last night that as a Jew, yeah. I feel like we're supposed to pay attention right now. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not even religious, but I have a feeling of like, my whole life I thought, why didn't they do something about all this, you know, during World War II? Yeah. And it feels like if I shut it all off and write silly jokes, I'm abdicating some responsibility. And then my my friend was saying, no, the way you change the world is through your art And that teaches people about love and connection and compassion. And everything you do to protest everything that's going on doesn't matter at all or anywhere near as much as the messages you slyly send through your comedy or your movies. And how that's it with you. You know, you know what I think of. I just think of trains of Jews going into camps (laughs) and I just think, aren't I supposed to be like on the on the train tracks stopping it? Yeah. And I think. That's is that just a a nice notion that I'll write a movie now that comes out in three and a half years? But how did that help people in Puerto Rico who have no water? Right, and aren't we supposed to?
0: Well, what? Yeah, but like, what? But what? What? See, the thing is, is like, would you be able to do the type of grunt work necessary to get your hands dirty and and help out in a practical way, in an immediate yeah. way? Well, the yeah, me- I, immediate
1: way I do it is I just try to raise money. Right, so I do you know I do an enormous amount of. Benefits. What and, is
0: the uh, the uh, a- ACLU thing? I, I they I got an invitation. Should I go? Uh,
1: yeah, I'm going to get uh, some sort of a recognition from the ACLU. As soon as the Trump thing hit, I said, I got to figure out what to do so I don't go crazy. One of the main things is I'm going to raise money for the ACLU. Yeah, because so much of what slows I immediately Trump down, sent
0: them them, I immediately sent them money.
1: Yeah, just, like you need lawyers, and and a lot of what has stopped yeah. uh, the terrible things he's done. Uh, the transgender ban in the military or or travel bans is because the aclu is suing them right so and then i think well i still get to do comedy yeah i could strong-arm friends into doing shows and at least it's doing something so that's one thing i try to do
0: well i think that's true i think that's right because like i think that you know on the other side where people are just thrilled at you know i I realize that what's happened because of a tone of an email i got is that that these people that had the that hated obama that hated uh, progressive uh, culturally progressive m- movements in on in all areas just became they were enraged and then they became exhausted by have being forced to tolerate things yeah. and then 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 once they didn't have to anymore the fury just came out the fury yeah. of intolerance so now their condescending position is like well now you guys have to tolerate you know <laughs> this this horrendous intolerance and hostility and racism and hate we had to put up with with you guys with making, love yeah, with love and open-hearted <laughs> shit open-minded garbage now that you know so so like for me like I think what we have to do as a service to ourselves, but also to the country is not fall into despair yeah. and let that become like, just like, it's, it's, I think that authoritarian regimes, you know, feed on, on hopelessness, despair, and, and the
1: reality that people are, are not really able to do anything about it. Yeah. And, and we're so confused that how much we're lied to, you know, for instance, uh, People already have forgotten about the Vegas shooting. Yeah. We're five insane things past that already. And that was just weeks ago.
0: Yeah. Everything, like, there's something about, there's an old Hicks joke. You remember the joke he did? I can't, I'm just paraphrasing it about watching the TV. It's like, death, destruction, war, (laughs) right? And then, you know, you open the door, it's like crickets. Like, there's (laughs) some profound idea about, you know, what you allow into your head, what you allow it to do, and what your reality is, and what you can do.
1: So the the question becomes: Can I stay positive? Can I think of constructive things to do while you know putting up my resistance and writing boner jokes? Yeah, simultaneously. Sure.
0: No, the boner jokes are important because if there's no humor, then there's just the hopelessness. And and yes. then you know, but yeah, but let's talk about before we go. I like I watched the rough cut of the Gary Shanling doc, and uh, it's a beautiful right. a beautiful thing. You're one of the few people who've seen it. Yeah, it was very touching. I loved it, and like I said to you, and I think I've told you before, and you knew him well, and you put this stuff together from archive footage, from his notebooks, from all the things you had access to in his life, and it's a, you know, it's a beautiful kind of uh, memorial of a friend and a mentor, but like that, that. Uh, memorial uh, service that I went to, the show, what would you call that? A memorial? Uh, Yeah,
1: we did a memorial for Gary at the Wilshire E-Bell and a lot of people spoke and, and I cut together Little documentary uh, sequences about different parts of but, Gary's life, but
0: just learning about him changed my life because I talked to him, and I don't know that I re- appreciated his comedy with the depth necessary, with the depth that was uh, that was there that it deserved, mm-hmm. and and also his process. And you know, you turning me on to him, and then having me go to that thing, and then we did the 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 green room together, and I got to you know sort of I always liked him, but I never knew on some weird level how
1: much I had in common with him. I think that emotionally, I think that's what most people uh, are realizing is that they didn't know him as well as they wished they did. Yeah. Although people don't, people don't really have the courage to dig. You know, if, if like you're in a unique position because you do get the moment with someone where you're allowed to ask the questions people will not ask in conversation. Yeah. Sometimes I can do it. Yes. Yeah, so every yeah. once in a while, you could just you know turn to someone like Gary Shandling and go, "Why are you like this?" Yeah. And and get answers. But in life. Even as his close friend, yeah, uh, I I wouldn't often <laughs> dig for the psychological underpinnings of who he was, but when I made the documentary and I started figuring out how he became this guy and what he was doing and what he was attempting throughout his life to be sane and to find happiness and peace, um, it, I, I realized that it was it's very powerful. I I related to it as well and. It's sad that people didn't get to share that with him as much as they could have while he was alive because he had a very interesting journey, which is the same as us, which is we're young, we we have some difficult childhood situation. Yeah, comedy becomes some way to escape, a way to be seen, then we want to be successful so that we feel good about ourselves so that at some point we realize, oh, that doesn't work. yeah what what does work? Which ultimately is love and connection and some higher purpose, and then we go for that, which is still difficult and uh, uh, you know very hard to attain, and then we, then we get killed in that North Korea bomb. No, <laughs> right as we're about to feel that peace, yeah, finally. But, <laughs> but Gary uh, had a fascinating, you know, story. I mean, the one that I love is that. When he's twenty years old, he went to a comedy—not uh, a comedy club, just a, a, a like a bar club—and yeah. saw George Carlin. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. And George Carlin is, you know, he, he's pretty new to being hippie. George Carlin. Yeah. Gary writes bits for him. And yeah. I, I found the bits. He wrote yeah. a fake commercial for legalized marijuana. Right. So he wrote. He literally wrote the bit. What if they legalize marijuana? What would the commercial be? And so he had about five pages of bits for Carlin he walks up to him and says hey I, I, I wrote you some jokes ballsy for 20 yeah and Carlin says I don't usually buy jokes but I'll read them if you want to come back tomorrow I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I thought Gary comes back the next day they're laid out on the table with like he wrote on them. he made notations and he says to young Gary you know what I don't buy jokes but there's one great joke on every page and I think if you you want to pursue this you should and Gary got in the car and just moved to California, <laughs> was, and it changed his life. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 he needed that. And you know,
0: who wouldn't? Who knows if Carlin would have done that on any other day? Because you yes. know what that's like, right? You, you know, who is this kid? It's yes. a mood thing. Yeah, like I, you know, like who? I don't know Carlin yeah. for you know how often he did that, but he was probably in in Arizona. What did he have to do? Yes, right. Like, you, you know what I mean? And this little ballsy Jewish kid is like, I got these jokes, and he's like, I got nothing to do tomorrow. I'm right? Gonna, I'm going to read these jokes
1: instead of going to the mall. Right. Yeah, something. Yeah. And it's, it, it eru- But I think Carlin used to do that. I heard his, his daughter, Kelly Carlin, on yeah. the show, and she said, he would bump into a comic, he would ask the comic for his number, and then it's eight months later, he would just call the guy and go, how are you doing? How's the career going? Yeah. And he would follow up in a in a really beautiful way with people. He he knew the that power that he had. And then I found this letter, and this isn't in the documentary, where 10 years later, or seven years later, Gary's doing like make me laugh. You yeah. know, he's just beginning to get spots at the comedy store, and he writes a letter to Carlin thanking him for telling him to be a comedian. And he says more important than your comedy is the man you are, and how he he wants to be a man like George Carlin, right? Who, who uh, you know speaks his truth, and uh, and it's it's wild. And I don't know if he sent it because I found it. It, look, right. it. it looked like the unsent right thank you letter. Wow. And it, but it was beautiful. Uh, it really. Uh, and he was like, I wrote an episode of Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> like that was going to impress George Carlin. <laughs> Maybe that's where the second thoughts came in. Yeah, no, I'm not going to send this, but that's going to be on in March. Great, and it's four hours. And I thought, you know what? If OJ's worth seven, yeah. Gary's got to be worth four. All right, buddy. Well, the special is great. It's called The Return. December twelfth on uh, yeah, so Netflix.
0: This, this is going to be. Uh, this isn't going to go up for a while because we're going to hold it until we we do for to promote the thing.
1: Yes. So, like, who knows? What the fuck? The world could be so different in the when this runs in three or four weeks. Ivanka could be in prison by then. Who? Who knows what? That's that's upbeat. (laughs) That's an optimistic. That's the best case case scenario.
0: Okay, again, Judd Apatow. The Return premieres tomorrow, December 12th on Netflix. And it's good. He's been a latent stand-up comic for a decade or so. It's good to have him out. Have him back. I did stand-up the other night at the comedy store. And um, I was third up in the original room. 10.45 spot, second show. And I got on stage. And i have just been free-forming, doing the riffage, trying to find the beats, trying to find the, 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 the path. Where is this going to go? What's this idea? How does it work? Does it have legs? But I've just been kind of having fun, riffing, trying not to freak out or freaking out in a funny way. And I get on stage and there's a guy, front row, stage left, totally asleep, totally asleep, and I'm talking, I'm on the mic and you can hear it. It's loud. And I'm talking about him being asleep and I'm asking him if he's awake, if he's, if he's enjoying his nap, nothing, he's not waking up. I took a picture of the dude on stage from the stage. And yeah, obviously I was, you know, having fun. And then uh, the flash apparently woke him up. And I got to be honest with you. I felt bad. I woke him up. I felt bad. Like I, you know, it was rude that he was sleeping, but it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I should have just let that guy sleep. You know what I mean? I don't know his life. You know, he's in a safe place. He's in a comedy club. He came for a few laughs. Maybe he hasn't slept in days and he was hoping that the comedy would make him feel better. And he just finally got a little shut eye. Uh, He did, I think, uh, uh, end up going back to sleep. So Loudon Wainwright, he's a very prolific folk singer. And his memoir, Liner Notes, came out in the fall and is available wherever you get books. So this is me and Loudon
2: chatting. Do You do the boat. I have a sailboat, so you know how to sail. I know how to sail. Yeah, I mean, that- I, I start. I started when I was fifty-five, so I kind of know how to sail. I've been doing it for fifteen years.
0: Oh, it wasn't something you grew up with. No, God, it's. Uh, uh, I got a friend who sailed around the world. Are you that proficient?
2: No, no. I, I once, <laughs> <laughs> I once, I once did a long sail for yeah. five days, and that cured me of that. So you can sweep in the boat. I have a there is a place to sleep on the boat. I, I've never slept there. I had sex there once, but oh, we good. actually didn't sleep.
0: Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that were you moving? Were you out on the water or just, was it just <laughs> the
2: anchor was dropped, as they say. <laughs> yeah. We were anchored.
0: Yeah. Well that well that was good. It was a was that a something that you needed to get out of your system or is that like like let's fuck on a boat it's time to fuck on a boat haven't done that let's do that i don't know how much time i got left
2: well you know you have a boat and there's a place to lie down it's actually a a toilet a head they call it yeah and i've i i have used that but uh, i said well so we said we should at least have sex on the boat this is what your wife this is my my other my better, much better half, yeah, uh, my girlfriend.
0: Oh, there's a girlfriend.
2: Yeah, I got a girlfriend.
0: The girlfriend is is this the mother of the lady the last child? No, no, no,
2: this is somebody new. Oh, that was a new one. This is somebody who works at the New Yorker. In fact, I listened to your your show with David Remnick. which oh, yeah. I greatly enjoyed. But this oh, is yeah. Susan Morrison. Okay, who's a who's a big editor at the New Yorker.
0: Oh, that's great. So yeah. that's nice. So you you have someone to have talk, sex with on a boat have sex on a boat with and have high-minded conversations <laughs> yeah. about things well uh yeah so tonight you, you flew in today you're gonna you're gonna go do a thing with christopher guest tonight mm-hmm. and you guys know each other a long time
2: about 45 years yeah
0: where did that start where did how did you like uh, you know like i i've talked to mckean you know do you and you're friends with him too. i went
2: to college with mckean so that's how i met chris actually
0: and David and Landers too. David
2: Lander, Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh, acting school. I was so we're all studying to be actors. Oh really? Yeah. And then my and then uh, uh, Michael and David got kicked out, and and Michael went to NYU, and that's where he met Chris in the acting program. Uh huh. So when I came to New York, I, I met uh, Chris through Michael.
0: Oh, so they were like youngsters. Like, they yeah.
2: they met in college. That whole thing started in college.
0: Yeah, like what what years are we talking there? Like that would be what
2: sixty seven.
0: Yeah, so you weren't pl- you were playing a bit, or you weren't playing.
2: I was beginning to play. I was I was I had a, I had played guitar, and by I was being to inter- I began to write in, in sixty
0: eight. Uh huh. So you, the original idea was to be an actor.
2: That was the the original plan.
0: Well, that's right because in the book you talk about that feeling, <laughs> that feeling of. Of making people laugh on stage and just sort of like, this is where, this is it.
2: Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So that was really, you You just knew you wanted to be on stage, connecting. It,
2: it started when I was in Santa Ana, uh, when I was about seven, I sang a song acapella for my mother and her twin sister, oh, yeah. uh, and these two beautiful, uh, they were, you know, 27 or whatever they were, beaming down this love and approval on yeah. me, and that... That uh, that clinched the deal for me. I knew that it wanted, did it. I, I I pretty that's, you know, I wanted to be a cowboy and an astronaut, but then I wanted to be a performer after they.
0: But yeah, so like so, as a, uh, your yeah, your mom had twin sisters. So where did you? Let's. I guess we should go all the way back because it's sort of interesting to me because you grew up in these kind of like two worlds in terms of who your parents were. Yes. Because uh, you have a very kind of like there's a a fairly. Uh, uh, high, uh, you know, high falutin, <laughs> you know, name. powerful bloodline, uh, you know, of America in a way. Yeah, uh, legacy. Yeah, it's a big name, but your dad comes from a big family, right? From a like an old family.
2: Yeah, the Wainwrights have been around. For years, and uh, we're relatives with the Stuyvesants, you know Peter Stuyvesant, sure. the one-legged governor. Yeah. So my dad grew up as a kind of uh in the what they call the Gold Coast of Long Island. You know. So the Stuyvesants,
0: So that money or that family connection goes back to like pre-America, New York, to Dutch New York. Does it go that?
2: Yeah. F- Peter Stuyvesant was the first governor of New Amsterdam. Uh huh. Right. So, right.
0: Okay. So way back. Way back. Yeah. They had those uh, uh, like that. I n- I never understand how that money stays around. Do you?
2: I don't know anything about money. I, I'm really—I
0: know you're a musician, it. A but it? But you grew up, you, you know, in that world, right? Westchester,
2: like, New York, you know, in the, in the country the, clubs, the, mansions. The, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. We were the members of the. We were members of the Bedford Golf and Tennis Club. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And but my dad met my my mother was from the opposite end of the social scale. She yeah. was this funky white trash chick from Tifton, Georgia. Uh huh. You know, real really dirt poor. Her dad was an itinerant uh, tobacco farmer.
0: Uh huh. And she had the she talked like that,
2: loudy. Yeah, loudy. <laughs> That's so beautiful, loudy. Yeah. Sing that again. That's yeah. sweet. I'm glad you had that though. Yeah, no. She was my biggest supporter. You yeah. Know, when I was being in trying to start out singing and playing and stuff.
0: Well, there's a, like there's a lot of kids though. There's what four of you or three of you?
2: I have I have four and a half. Siblings, I, my dad had a had a daughter late in his life. And uh, you guys
0: are, you know, just are you on the same uh,
2: life plan. Just just go out there and <laughs> fool around and see what happens. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, how old's that one? That is Anna, and Anna is th- thirty three.
0: That's your half sister.
2: That's my half sister Anna. That's wild, huh? Yeah. Yeah. When did you start,
0: like, you know, what, because, like, I listen to a lot of the music, and, you know, you write very well in in the book, and and there's something about, and you seem like a pleasant man. (laughs) It's early. (laughs) I had a nap. (laughs) But, I mean, there's something about, like, because I do comedy, and I do very, uh, you know, personal comedy. Uh Uh-huh and and it seems that you are sort of compelled to be as personal as possible as well. Yes. And it seems that you you know in my own life and I imagine in yours that you, you know there's a price to pay for that.
2: Some rough thanksgiving dinners with the family. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but when how does that we well, we can evolve into that? But when did you start you, you know writing songs and what was what 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 drove you initially?
2: Well, I, first I learned how to play the guitar when I, you know, I had a guitar when I was 13, and I never thought I'd write songs. My dad was a writer, and writing, you know, observing him be a writer. But he just, was like a journalist, He was right? a journalist. He was a famous journalist. He had a column in Life magazine for... For years, and he was very well known in the '60s when I was growing up.
0: So it. I guess at some, you know, you had to look up to that. You knew that your dad was famous, I, right? Yeah,
2: I like looked up to it, but I also looked askance at it because I, a, I didn't want to be like him, like most snotty nosed kids. You don't want to be like your parents. Uh huh. And second of all, he he seemed to be an unhappy person trying to write and meet deadlines and write books.
0: But was he un- unhappy in general, <laughs> or or? or...
2: He was unhappy in general. Yeah, he had a he had a hard ass father, Loudon Wainwright the first. Yeah, who who died when 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 my dad was only seventeen. Uh huh. And he never got to you know work any of their stuff out. So I I think he was a
0: uh, hard ass. How?
2: Well, I never met him, but you know, get your elbows off the table, and uh, just a disciplinarian, Mm -hmm. and and you know, not
0: emotional, not
2: not yeah, other than angry, cold, (laughs) angry or cold. I've seen pictures of him, and I. Uh, in fact, there's a picture of him in the book. You can see that he's he's holding it in and not letting it. Well, what
0: going. what I thought was interesting in the book is that in in the parts I read was that you know, and I try to track this in my own life is that you know, you have enough self awareness, you've done enough research on yourself, and and there is a, a to to the degree that you have, but there's this legacy. You know, there are these generations of either emotional detachment or coldness that you know you're 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 up against. Whether it's conditioned or genetic, mm-hmm. that you're propelled by these things.
2: Yeah, you're, the deck is stacked genetically. It,
0: yeah, or, well, yeah. However, a, it
2: go- it, the beat goes on. You know, there is a legacy of, of, uh, of, of d- depression and self-loathing. But and-
0: your dad seemed like your dad was was not. I mean, it seemed like you had a relationship with him.
2: We. Um, you know, it we it kind of toward the end of his life. He died uh, he was only 63 when he died. Yeah. So, uh we uh we kind of got a little closer toward the end, particularly after he got sick. Yeah. Uh and in 1982, which was 5 years or 6 years before we died, he and I took a trip to Australia together. I was playing there and they threw in an extra plane ticket. My dad came with me. We were both guys then. We yeah. both had broken families, and we're in new relationships. Yeah, his Anna had just been born, so he was a new dad. He was a fifty-nine-year-old new dad.
0: That's wild, though. That must have been bizarre. Yeah. So you're you're on a level playing field almost.
2: Yeah, we, we really had probably the best time we ever had. Uh huh. Then. Yeah. You know, kind of toward the end.
0: Yeah, because you do talk about a moment in the book where
2: you you finally yeah, give it to him a little bit. I gave it to him at the very end when he was in the hospital actually dying. And he, you know, so he's hooked up to tubes and bags and, you know, and and I've always had this thing where, you know, my name is Loudon Wainwright III, which is kind of a pretentious, it's my actual name. (laughs) yeah, but, But- so he said, when my career started, he said, well, you should you should use the third because we don't want to have any confusion about which Loudon is which. Right. So I agreed to that. Yeah. But then I realized soon after that yeah. that he didn't use junior. Yeah. So I said, and I, then I waited 20 years, but yeah. finally he's dying. <laughs> I said, you know, Dad, I just got to say something. This, the Roman numeral thing and the, you did not use the junior thing. So you were just playing old Loudon Wainwright. Yeah, and then he said, "You can have the name when I'm dead," which shut me up pretty good. <laughs>
0: There's that poetry. See yeah. the poetry that goes right through it, too. Yeah. So, what were your choices like? I, I, I you know, you chose to be a musician, uh, and you you went to these private schools, which must have been a nightmare. But uh, when did you choose? Like, how was the the culture changing that made you want to do it?
2: Well, I went to Carnegie, which is where I met McKeen. But, but it
0: must happen before, right? Well, the,
2: the playing was. But I didn't think I was going to be an actual musician, although I played in folk bands in boarding school and thing. But but I, I dropped out of college. I was a hippie in San Francisco for about two years. I got busted in uh, '67 for in Oklahoma. You were a hippie in
0: like the late in which years? I was there in the summer of love. Donald Fagan and I
2: lived in a crash pad along with some other people. Did you meet him in San Francisco? Yeah. Fagan? That's where I met him. I had met him earlier. My, My girlfriend at that time... Had friends at Bard, so he was at Bard, and that that summer they went out too. It's so weird. Like, like I know that he's like a
0: great musician and a funny guy and a cynical writer, but I never locked into the Steely Dan thing. Really? Well, I mean, I can listen to it. I know the good songs. Uh huh. You know, but like in terms of like complete nerding out, which it seems like they're a band where there's just people who are full on,
2: yeah, Steely Dan nerds. I am, a, I am a huge Steely Dan fan. Sure. In fact, once I asked Donald, because I, I kind of know him, and I yeah. know his wife, Libby Titus, and I, I, I asked him if he would produce one of my records for me. Yeah. He said no. no. <laughs> <laughs> kind, of, kind of crushed me so but uh, i'm a huge fan i love those records but yeah, I, I know that a lot of people don't you know I, I'm, I'm
0: i'm coming around i know that i know the ones i grew up with it's very like, controlled yes maybe that's the problem it's, yeah I, I do like things nailed messy. it's nailed down yeah it's almost it's, it's almost
2: like uh, sterilized I, I don't know i find the, the the great stuff and there's a lot of it the yeah. songs are very sad i mean the writing and his as a vocalist I think Fagan is one of the great singers.
0: No, I, I I agree. I agree. So you guys you kept in touch a little bit. A
2: bet. We see each other every every once in a while. Yeah. I I don't. I forgive him for not wanting to produce my record.
0: Well, you got Richard Thompson to do it. That's not nothing. That's right. All right. So the summer of love. Like, what was that like? Were you a, a acid guy,
2: drug guy? Acid. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: The good Get- stuff. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it was pretty. It, we would drop acid in the morning and then just kind of wander around Golden Gate Park, ah. talk to the the bison at the Buffalo pen there. Yeah, and uh, you know, saw so, so free concerts with the Grateful Dead and the Big Brother and the whole. You hang out with those guys at all? I no, because I was just a lowly, you know. You weren't even a guy. No, yet. No, I wasn't a guy yet. Yeah.
0: You were know, uh, just one of the the, the, the hippie uh, yeah, yeah. masses. Yeah, I was.
2: I was. <laughs> you know, I would go to the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic to get broken glass ticket out of my foot. I mean, oh, I was one of those right. guys. Because yeah, you're yeah. walking around sure, on drugs sure. yeah. with no shoes. <laughs> <laughs> a great idea in a major city. But you were a kid, right? I mean, how old were you? Well, uh, 67. 20? I was, t- I, yeah, I wasn't a total kid. I was 21. But, that, but, you know, like,
0: I, I guess when I talk to guys who, you know, come uh, of age as musicians at that time, I mean, you were there with this, like, cataclysmic shift, two or three of them, really, in music, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you grew up and it was the end of, you know, what would have been sort of Big Bandy, I would imagine, when you were a kid. And then rock and roll starts and happens. Right. I and then that. and then all of a sudden it just completely shifts in the late '60s, mm-hmm. into folk, and then whatever you know, acid yeah. and
2: speed yeah. <laughs> yielded. Right, whatever the drugs that were being taken. Right, but right. the
0: Beatles, like I mean, you were like a, a, a like a very impressionable person when that shit went down.
2: Yeah, no, I loved all the, you know, the Beatles and the Stones, and of course Dylan. I mean, when I and when I started to play the guitar and 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 sing the folk boom was happening. Yeah. which didn't last very long, but it from, didn't though. it didn't really did it, it. It lasted about 2 years. Yeah. And the Newport Folk Festival was the grooviest thing, but then electric music when when Bob plugged in. Right. reasserted its power. <laughs> but but that that <laughs> is, is that how you look at it? You know, like it's like, you
0: know, we had a good thing going and then, you know, you had to bring electricity into it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, it left a lot of a lot a lot of folkies in the dust. I mean, I I loved when Dylan went electric. Yeah, it was very powerful and exciting and great.
0: Like, because like I read Dylan's book, you know, the the strange autobiography, the chronicles. Yeah, which was great. Like, I think some of the best stuff in it was his you know depiction of that scene. Mm -hmm. So, like after, so I'm assuming you go, you you went to San Francisco, did your acid, right? And uh, did you run away, or did you? from san
2: francisco or well i was arrested in oklahoma on my way back uh and, yeah and for then, what for possession of uh, marijuana <laughs> yeah and um <laughs> and then i started to uh write songs yeah and uh, but and with an acoustic guitar with not with an electric guitar right so and then i went and sang in these little hoots and open mic things and Cambridge and in New York but did you have to do jail time I was in jail for five days for five days and nights
0: just for weed
2: yeah but they were they were they were very excited because they found out that my dad was the famous Life magazine writer so they were talking about 10 years oh so in Oklahoma City yeah
0: but they wanted to, they because of that, I thought they were going to give you a break. I thought you wasn't no.
2: Gonna... And then my dad, he was, he was living in London then, and he had to, so he had to take two long airplanes. You know, one to New York, and then yeah. down to Oklahoma City. And he got a lawyer, and he has he knew a judge in New York, and basically he used his influence and money to get my ass out of jail. They really Which, and it was about to get jumped on my ass. <laughs> yeah, because I was in a tank with with you know it was a it was a county jail in Oklahoma City. Uh huh. At night we would. We would sleep uh, with a roommate but in the day it was you know 40 guys milling around really so it was pretty
0: kind of hard time for five days
2: for for a preppy kid from from northern westchester (laughs) it was it scared the hell out of me i still have nightmares about it do you really yeah so then and so i was cute yeah i was really cute yeah i saw those those album
0: covers those early album covers yeah Yeah, yeah, you're a looker man right (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah you weren't exuding
0: alpha strength
2: no, they, they were going to jump on me. So my dad got me out, and then and that kind of straightened me up. And uh-huh. then, then I started into music.
0: So you say you you were doing hoots? Is that what they were called?
2: Hoots, open nights. You know, you'd go and play three songs for a lot of other singer-songwriters and some Japanese tourists.
0: But you were going up to Cambridge, and you were in New York. You went back to New York. Back and
2: forth. I went back and forth to Cambridge and, and between Cambridge and New so York. So that
0: was the folk scene, Cambridge that and New York. That was the folk scene. And then... Because I know you talk about seeing Phil Van Ronk and
2: those guys, and like, was this was this the the heart of it, or were you were the the big folk stuff had, had gone right? You know, Dylan had gone electric, so the early Bleecker Street, McDougal Street, you know, Dave Van Ronk. Dave, right, yeah, um, uh, Phil Oaks, Dylan, Richard Farina. Uh, that was five years before my time, so the remnants of that was going on when I hit the Village. In, Who was the remnants? Well, you know there was still Eric Anderson. I don't know if you know who he he was. He was a good singer-song. Uh-huh. He was a good singer-song. Uh-huh. John Hammond Jr. Was I around. love him. Well, John Hammond Jr. I, I did a lot of shows with him at the Gaslight.
0: So you're okay. So you're doing that folk thing, and then you know how does uh, the second tier, the second wave of the folk thing,
2: and what and what happens? Well, what happens is I'm I'm opening a show at the Village Gaslight on McDougal Street for John Hammond Jr. Yeah. And a guy called Brian Keating, who was writing for the Village Voice, wrote this ridiculously ecstatic review. Uh-huh. You know, uh, this guy is the next guy. Yeah. You know? And that's what happens with comedians or musicians or actors. You know, they, they get pounced on, if they're good.
0: Yeah, and, it, and when there was one or two papers, that meant something. Right. And there was I, no other input.
2: And within six months, I had a record deal at Atlantic Records. My struggle was so brief, it was ridiculous. I mean, I did not pay any dues. <laughs> but in that song on,
0: uh, I think it's history, the Bob Dylan riff, the Talking Blue Structured song. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talk about that there was, the, that there was a sort of a, 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 a big
2: rush to sign Dylan types. Yeah, because it, he was out of commission. For one thing, he had had his motorcycle accident. Right. So male singer-songwriters were really, you know, they were signing them left and right. So and, you said that it was you, Prine, Springsteen. Yeah, we we I used to joke that we we should start a a you know a, a new Bob Dylan club. Sure. And meet every year at Bruce's house and he should and have burgers. He's got a nice house out there. He's got a good house. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Are you friends with him? I have never met Bruce Springsteen I've seen him play a couple of times but I've never met him I saw him way at the beginning of his career you
0: guys are all workers you know what I mean I mean that's that's the wild thing about the life you've led and as a comic I know that that you know you go out there with your guitar and you're still out there with your guitar yeah. and
2: ultimately I'm one I, whatever level you're doing that at that's what you're doing yeah right no so, that's the, that's the last chapter in my book the 75 to 90 it's it's about the job of going and playing for 75 to 90 minutes in in, in most, in my case a lot of the time in clubs you know and i've been right. doing it for almost 50 years so all right so you get signed all yeah. you guys are you friends with Prime? i've talked to i him. am i am friends with Prime. It's
0: great you guys He's, are like you write very uh, you know, beautiful and clever songs with a little, little bite to them a little humor yeah. a, little, a little jab in the heart were you a, were you a steve goodman fan I, I you know I know about Steve like you know I don't like some of this music is is familiar to me from my childhood and I know about the you know the couple of hits but I and somebody sent me a lot of that stuff yeah, and he I know was he, great
2: and he and Prine were kind of
0: Yeah they were buddies. Yeah, he did it from uh, the Chicago scene right Right right. But so you get the record deal and what was the uh, what was the expectation
2: Well uh, they they pretty much let me do what I wanted to do. That would be Atlantic Records. Nessui Erdogan signed me. So my first record is, I took seven months to make, and it's totally voice and guitar. It's not Right, uh, the Loud and One. Loud and One is just straight ahead, just the songs. Got great reviews, and nobody bought it. <laughs> so then it came time for the second album, which, interestingly enough, was called Album Two. Yeah, good good thought on that. Good yeah. creativity and on the title. And that uh again there was a harmonica on that and i did a duet with my wife my then wife kate McGarrigle. but the rest of the record is all voice and guitar and one song on the piano and nobody and great reviews and nobody bought that one yeah so atlantic dropped me columbia clive davis signed me and then i i he's a big guy so it was Ahmet or the other or his brother. well nesui signed Anes- me right okay uh and then clive signed me to uh another big guy C- columbia yeah and uh, then I, then the dead skunk thing happened. They put me together with a rock rock band. Why are you laughing? Yeah, I like that.
0: Way. I like the way you said it. Well, yeah, the, was
2: it not meant to be funny? It was a thing. I yeah. mean, you know, it was a thing. It was number one in Little Rock, Arkansas, for six weeks. There you go. Now you found your people. Man, yeah. I, I, I've always imagined Bill and Hillary kind of making out in a Rambler <laughs> station wagon, dead, to dead skunk, skunk, skunk on the radio. <laughs> yeah, but that was a, a freak thing, right? Well, so it was, was freaking it, that it, it's been my only hit so far. <laughs> uh huh. No, it was a big, big record, and and the but then that problem was that then I was the skunk guy, so where's the next funny animal song? So then you have the problem of but was there pressure? Yeah, there was, and I and I from, from was Clive and the, the the brass. And yeah, but then then the next thing I did was I made a record with Bob Johnston, you know, who produced blonde on blonde and Leonard Cohen's records and all the some of the great Dylan records in oh, yeah. Nashville we made a record in 4 days with all those guys and but it didn't have a funny animal song on it but that but, but that's sort of like wasn't there a certain amount of like cuz you're writing you, you know I
0: mean you're 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 doing you know real you know kind of soulful you know, folk music and you're writing you know clever songs that, that that tell a certain truth about the human condition and now you got this skunk song but you're still like the how did you not get uh angry and start drinking and
2: i, I did don't don't <laughs> worry i did <laughs> I started to drink and philander, and my my marriage broke up. And this, this is the marriage to to Kate, to Kate yeah. and
0: that's who that's Rufus's mom that's and Martha's Ruf-
2: Rufus mom. and Martha's mom. I've
0: yeah. met them oh. at different points in my life. So there you were, you, you know, the skunk song didn't repeat itself, and and now you're you're just a, a guy, not selling records. Well, I
2: had a career, not selling records, but yeah. the, but I, I still you know continued to work, and then uh, Clive signed me again to arista when when he went to arista so in 78 i just stopped trying to i was kind of half-heartedly trying to make what they called radio friendly records yeah You no know, records that were somewhat produced sure But then i started again and and just started to put out uh you know voice and guitar records and i made those records with richard thompson which were kind of stripped down and yeah so the the production on the record served the songs and i think generally i've managed to do that for the last for the last 30 something years
0: well when you look back on it like you know i noticed in the book that you talk about like philandering or the road or or what have you is you know and that you have done or tried to do and what that did to your family i mean you i I, i'm just trying to put my finger on it like because like when you do these things in songs you know when you do songs you know about this kind of stuff you know right. about truth about about hitting your kid about your relationship with your father or or fathers in general about you know whatever the darker songs you have the more touching mm-hmm. songs that you know that song is that three or four minutes you know but you still have this you know a life where you I imagine you know you have a full range of emotions and mm-hmm. and 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 you're a decent fella but but it, it's it's just interesting when you're defined by your music because there. I, I don't know wh- whether I read it uh, or, or I'm just projecting it. That how close do you feel to the protagonists of your songs in general?
2: Well, I feel I, I wouldn't pretend that it's uh, I feel close. To, it's it's me, you know. It is. It's it's a kind of crystallized, polished. I mean, although it talks about some of my. Uh, less appealing traits sometimes but it is me i've it's been it's it's the it's the waterfront that i've covered Uh my life my family my kids my parents my sister there's songs about all these people because these are the people that uh mean a lot to me and then quite they're quite particular and i don't really write generic uh love songs (sighs) i admire people that can do that yeah or even other people that have kind of cryptic things where you're not quite sure what they're writing about right like dylan or even steely dan for that matter. sure you're never quite sure what they're what it's about yeah but my tendency and i don't, don't know why because it's just the way that i write everybody develops a style but i write very straight ahead it's very descriptive there's a beginning a middle and an end and a lot of it i mean i do write sometimes political songs and straight ahead novelty songs but a lot of it are is about my family and my life well which
0: is interesting cuz it's like you know a lot of prime songs are not he makes characters
2: yeah i you know, don't I get do that much
0: so that you're yeah, right so there's those are the choices either you write cryptic songs that people can just you know kind of use as a template to feel whatever they're going to feel mm-hmm. without having any kind of you know not knowing what it means yeah yeah and then you have like st- songs about people you make up and then then there's guys who do the straight stuff you're like the straight guy you're the you go right to the heart of it you're doing the memoir song. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, baby. The real deal. <laughs> That's it. I'm the real
0: deal. I'm the real <laughs>
2: damn deal.
0: But, like, when you're writing as a kid, you know, when you wrote, you know, Loud and One and stuff, you, you know, you, you must have had in your mind, you were judging yourself
2: against, you know, Dylan or whatever, right? Yeah. And you're like, I got to, I got to nail this thing. Well, I had to figure out, like, again, like everybody else in show business, when you start, you've got to figure out. Uh, what to look like and you know how to separate yourself from the pack
0: how'd you do with that
2: well i i I assumed i took i took up the costume of my youth i i looked had short hair if you look at that first album everybody else had long hair and and bell-bottom pants right i had kind of a brooks brother blazer and and gray flannel pants yeah and uh so right away there was a, a different look right and then uh I started to sing a lot about myself. So you're preppy-ish. Yeah, preppy psycho killer look. Right, not Kingston Trio. No, 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 no. that would have, no, no, no. That That's too, that's late 50s. <laughs> right, so.
0: but they were all pretty clean cut, seemed preppy-ish, right? And, yeah, and, But striped shirts, I think, is yeah, I no, recall. Yeah, I would
2: never wear a striped shirt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell them what I'm wearing today. That's a nice uh, plaid, I, a nice multicolored plaid. Thank I, you. It is striped. I, oh, it's, oh, it's, I thought there was, no, oh, it's not a plaid, it's a striped shirt. <laughs> Fashion on the radio is great, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not Kingston Trio stuff. No, no, no. That, that, that's a vertical. They were short sleeve shirts. Yeah, the yeah, Kingston Trio. Oh, thank God, because they all
2: matched exactly. You know? Yeah, that, that was the big mistake. So,
0: all right. So, you're doing these records. The Skunk Song happens. You know, you have this relationship with the label with Clive Davis. Or, what, what, what's happening around you in music at that point? What are you up against? Because like you've you've really you know kept going. <laughs> yeah. But and, and at different times, music is changing around yeah. you constantly. But you you're locked into uh, Americana music, one you know, folk or, or you know, country ish. I write character. the
2: songs on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. You know, usually record them with that, and it's the same five chords that I learned when I was fifteen. What happened was I just kept my head down and kept writing songs.
0: Right, but when 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 did things get bad? Like, it, at what point did did the family structure start to the vessel start to kind of shake? Uh, you, you know, like in terms of you, you know, you put these records out, you're not selling records, you got to be on the road. Mm-hmm. You're you're building a following, however right. you're doing it. Right, and and it, at some point, you said that you started drinking and that you did get bitter, and that made it into the music a bit, but yeah. it, it didn't seem to sink you.
2: No, no, I, I, you know, I didn't have, I have, I've had a pretty good time actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I, you know, I've, I've, uh, uh, this has been, like in, like anybody's life, there's collateral damage. Sure, you know. But I've I've really it, it hasn't been bad for me. Yeah, you know. I, I haven't been severely depressed uh, right. or or uh, had a nervous. When my mother died in '97, I, I kind of fell apart. But that was that was appropriate. Normal. Sure, natural. So so by and large, you know, I just kept my head down and did the job, and I liked playing and and that's still what I'm kind of doing. And how and what is your
0: how how is your how did your following evolve? How did you find that you got the people, the fan base? What did they come for? And how long have they been with you?
2: Well, a lot of them have been with me for the ride. I mean, sometimes I'm shocked when I see my my you know, I drive up to the club and I see these old people. I think they're there for the bingo. Yeah. Right. I mean, but th- then it's dark, and they're so beautiful and warm, and they yeah. love me. And but then other things happen, you know. We mentioned Judd. I mean, I, I did this. Uh, I was in this show that Judd Apatow did, uh, Undeclared. Yeah. So as a result of something like that, all of a sudden there were young people there. Uh huh. So or fans of my of my son and Rufus and uh-huh. Martha or something. Uh, so, so you know, occasionally there's uh, some uh, young people up there. Sure, but it must be
0: it must be wild because, like, you know, have you had that experience where, <laughs> I mean, how old are you? Do you mind? Seventy-one. Asking? So you're seventy-one, and you know you've had you've had a good go at it. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've 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 lived your life. Do you have that moment where you go back
2: to places and a woman comes up to you and goes, "Do you remember me?" Yeah, that's happened, yes. And invariably, (laughs) no, I don't. But I say, of course I do. And my line is, through the mists of time, here we are. (laughs) And, uh, no, that just happened to me, actually.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Like with somebody your age? Uh,
2: Yeah, somebody my age. It's wild, right? And a very nice person. And uh, so I said hello and apologized, and we let it go at that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> you apologize yeah, I, I didn't apologize that's she right. apologized well that well that's funny though because like you're not like i i guess like the assumption about how a performer lives on the road you you know you're not some sort of crazy party dude you know you weren't like some, not anymore no yeah uh, you're not some dangerous weird uh, junkie or freak out there you're folk guy right and you're out there getting laid just like anybody else yeah but they must be uh, i'm just picturing just pleasant uh, p-
2: pleasant ladies by and large, they were very pleasant. <laughs> As I recall, <laughs> they were human beings. Sure. Because they're not
0: they're like, you know, they're responding to something yeah. very,
2: you know. But pure. I hasten to say we're laughing about it, but that's important to point out, at least for me, is that a, a lot of it created a, a guilt and b- bad feelings and feeling like an idiot and a jerk and a, a, an abuser of power you know, to, and, and again, it, it, it in terms of my domestic life, you know, I had the, the marriage with Kate, then I was with uh, Suzzy Roach for nine years, and we had a daughter. So those marriages were, were kind of smashed up because of my goofing around. On the road. Uh, a lot of it, yeah,
0: yeah. But it wasn't like your dad, you weren't hiding, like, seven-year relationships necessarily. Uh, right?
2: I didn't do that, you know. I, I would hide, like, two-week relationships. And right. again, a lot of times... Uh, we're talking about my proclivities a lot, but again, the nature of the job is—you go to some town. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not a relationship at all. It's a—you know—someone yeah. to go home with, right? So you don't have to face the television set.
0: But but also, it's like it's surprising as somebody who well, does that happen in your world? Sure, must. of course. Uh, you know, I—I I mean, I ruined a, a mar- uh, the, my first marriage like that, but I—but uh, I don't have—I um, don't have children. I never did that. It's a, I, I don't feel terrible about it, but yeah, I mean, there's something profoundly lonely about a hotel room. I don't know what it is, but you know, when you're on the road, even if it's for a night, you're like, "What?
2: What's going? Where am I?" And you've what just am, made love to three hundred or three thousand people. I get who've right. adored you, right? I guess I don't factor that in all the time. Yeah, like so. you've done a thing, right? And then you said so you just so you kind of take a hostage <laughs> back to the hotel, a love <laughs> hostage. Yeah, and they're they're excited they are they're, they're into it they yeah. you know
0: but what, but you've talked you sing about this stuff and it 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 has there there has been like kind of a you know tension that you know i mean rufus came at you with a song and i think martha came at you with a song yeah. and there's you know there was like a, and i imagine why wouldn't they you're their dad you right. do it right i mean you've been
2: writing about them since they were infants yeah no, so th- it's all you know. If you you, you, you got to take it, if you're going to dish it out, and and Rufus and Martha, uh, you know, have certainly uh, taken shots, and uh, I can take it. You know? Yeah, I mean, w- sometimes it's uh, Martha wrote this uh, song. Uh, it, uh, you, I, you can swear on your radio, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So bloody motherfucking right, vessel. yeah. So. For, for a while, you know, when she used to play, she used to open shows for me in the beginning of her career. So she uh, would do this song, and I thought, I would think, boy, uh, she was going out at the time with a singer called Dan Byrne. Uh-huh. I don't know if you know who he is. Re- a really talented singer, a bit older than her. Uh-huh. And they had a tough difficult relationship so yeah. i thought well that's a tough song about dan bloody motherfucking asshole <laughs> yeah. so then we're in paramus new jersey mm. and martha goes out and it's to you know it's my audience in in the in the in the room mm-hmm. primarily because yeah. her career is still moving up so she announces to my audience that this is a song about my dad and then sings bloody motherfucking asshole so that was a moment <laughs> that's I was. Let's bring up. Hello. (laughs) Yes. How was that when you got up on stage? Uh, Well, I just made a joke. I can't remember. Probably. Yeah. yeah, Yeah.
0: I just got through it. Why she just so she decided to lay that on you and
2: you had no idea and what what happened after that? Show? Martha's very provocative. I, I'm I'm sure she would agree with that. She yeah. likes to push the envelope. Sure. I, I agree. I I think that's a good thing to do. Performers need to sure. wake people up, shake people up, even if it's their dad, even if it's their dad before he goes you know? on and, in front uh, of his audience. Yeah, but but
0: it seemed like it was almost like a secret she was keeping for a while because she was playing it. Yeah. And then at some point she decided like well he I can't let him think that it's not about him.
2: Right. No.
0: Yeah. And then and then but you never there was never a point where you guys weren't talking to each other. Oh, no,
2: no. we've got, we've been there. We've been there. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Let's see. Am I talking to Rufus this week? <laughs> now, I have another daughter who's an incredible mu- musician. That yeah. I want to talk about Lucy Lucy Wayne right? yes. Roach, my daughter with Suzy. Yeah. And she has from the roaches, has, right? Yeah. Well, Lucy has not written a song attacking me yet, and I really appreciate uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. And, but that's not her style anyway.
0: Yeah, but sometimes I think it's that first uh, group Could of happen, kids. Could happen, though. Sure. But I think it's the first group of kids that, all, that think they get the raw end of the stick yeah. the, the most. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In general? Yeah. But Rufus like, is a spectacular performer and songwriter, and you know his, like I, his song about you, I guess, is what, Dinner at
2: Eight? Yeah. And that's a, it's a sad song. That's a beautiful song. It is. It really is. And it's sad. Yeah. uh, And, uh, but I think it's a great song. It's one of his great songs.
0: Well, when you, when you process this stuff, what do you think your best album is for you? What's the one that you're like, that was, I really nailed it all the way through on that one.
2: Uh, Well, I've made 27 albums. I I think, uh, and and, you know, some people, and I've made some duds, that's for sure, or albums that I don't really like. Yeah, I, I think there's an album called History that I made in, uh, was right after my dad died. Yeah. And that event was such a cataclysmic uh thing. These songs started to come out that I and I think they're some of my best songs.
0: Yeah, it's a great record.
2: Yeah. It's a great record. And then my, when my mother died, I, I made a record called Last Man on Earth and a lot of that unfortunately I only have two parents. Yeah. But you know, those those are two very strong records of mine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, history is like history is like beautiful. And I think didn't you do one of your father's songs on yes.
2: that? Yes, my dad wrote a song. Um, there was a guy that he my my dad lived. We lived in L.A. for for a bit in the early fifties, and Dad was a friend with uh-huh. Terry Gilkison, who was a a folk singer and a, but a a pop folk singer. He had a group that they sang backup on Dean Martin records, like Memories are made of this. And oh, they, well, they a, were
0: that weird Hawaiian bunch. Well, when they, we they were. Well, da, da, it was it da, was folky, da, da, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. They sang
2: a song called "The Wild Goose." Well, that that song "Memories" has a weird little uke. It's yeah. got a uke thing. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But Terry Gilkison yeah. and my father were drinking buddies, uh-huh. and 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 I think da- my dad took a shot at writing some songs, ha- hanging out with him, and he wrote a great song about 1950. So yeah. he would have been 25. Yeah. called "That Man Is Just a Handful of Dust," and that that song is on uh, history.
0: I guess I'm sort of fascinated at, at your self awareness and about because I, I wrestle with the, some of the same things you do. Now, do, is is there redemption after this? When you say that you look back or in the moment or or whatever wreckage you've 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 reaped on anybody, do you you just have an acceptance around it that it eventually resolves itself if, if you don't make it worse, or or do you? Do you still kind of like you just think you're propelled by that? By is there still guilt and you know self hatred and that kind of stuff? Yeah,
2: but but you know, it, it, I'm get, There's also there is redemption and forgiveness. And, yeah. You know, I mean, my kids are you know my youngest daughter whose name is Alexandra. She's 25. But I mean, Rufus is 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 44 and Martha's 40 and Lucy's. 35 and they all have kids or uh rufus and martha have kids so you know but they're all grown-ups they've been banged around in the world and so so there's some forgiveness floating around Uh, you're right and that and that that that's what i've you know one of the things i did in my book was i i included some of the my father's writing he was a beautiful elegant writer some of his essays are in the book and i love the you know uh, he and i had a kind of a crappy relationship but he died more than twenty-five years ago, so there's a forgiveness thing that's going on now between me and him, even though he's been uh, dead. And and if you can't forgive your parents, I'm talking to my kids now. If you can't forgive your parents, you can't forgive yourself. That's my that's my theory at this point. And that, and, and but you learn that the hard way. You make a lot of mistakes, and I made plenty of mistakes. I mean, it wasn't, but it wasn't any more than anybody else. I just wrote about it. I had a couple of broken marriages, and I screwed around. I mean, that's it. No, I know. I I know. Like, I I used that one, too.
0: Um, Like, in the sense that, you know, there is a short menu, to to transgression yeah, to, yeah. You, you know and there's of course there's a big range yeah but you know certainly there are ones that sort of there's nothing unusual i didn't drown any puppies or no right like yeah and you didn't uh, you know bankrupt a country or yeah. kill anybody right 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 you know you kind of like judge yourself on the the moral transgression chart and how familiar it is culturally
2: yeah and you're like look you know people fuck up yeah right yeah yeah, so so please forgive me kids. <laughs> I'm saying this on the radio.
0: <laughs> but you also you seem to wrestle with the very idea of uh of love. Yeah, love, yeah. Like I do material that's similar to this. And and I'm trying to like glean from you because I'm a little younger than you. You know, how you resolve some of that stuff. I mean, like, do you... Because I feel like I'm capable of love. Yeah. You know, of of giving. But there's something that holds
2: me back. Yeah.
0: And and in terms of guilt and and whatever. But, like, how have you... I imagine having kids changes that.
2: Well, I have a song called uh, All in a Family. It's All in a Family. And that is about love. You know, Um, love heals heartache and familial pain. And what family is not insane. Uh You know, so... The I, I've been love has been working its way into the songs in the last ten or twenty years. You feel,
0: with you feel with age and grandkids. Yeah,
2: I think <laughs> grand, grandkids. Yeah, you know, and you do realize that uh, you know it's kind of corny, but the the, the 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 L the love thing is a big thing. Do you ever feel pointlessness? Um, is that a th- a theme? Well, well. I mean, I wrote a song when I was 25 on my second album called The Suicide Song. Yeah. but it's you a long know, time ago. It was a long time ago, and I was kind of goofing around anyway. Right. I wasn't really. The worst I ever felt was after my mother died. I really went down hard on How old that. were you? 50. Uh-huh. Oh, Right. I was fifty-one or something. So you'd
0: already gone through a lot of your stuff too. Yeah,
2: I had a lot had happened to me, and and my father had died earlier, and that that was a, uh, more of a release for me when yeah. he died. But when my when my mother died, the the bottom went
0: out. And what, it, what what was the was the feeling? Just sort of like you know, like a void.
2: Yeah, uh, I I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I yeah. mean, I have been mildly yeah. depressed for my entire adult life. Sure, but this was the real thing. Yeah. You know, I, I was really, but but with time, yeah, and seeing a shrink, yeah, and some you know, lorazepam, I, I got back on my feet. Anyway. Yeah,
0: oh, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit before we we wrap it up. I, I know you got to do stuff, the uh, the acting and the uh, the sort of TV thing. I had no idea until I looked it up today that you you were actually involved with the the original David Letterman daytime show.
2: Is that true? Yeah, I was uh, the uh, musician sidekick on the couch for the first week. And, and, and that show didn't last that long. Is that what happened? No. Well, they did me for a week, and then they thought this isn't great, and then they tried some other guests, and then then they they shifted over to to, to late night and brought Paul Schaefer in, I guess. And like, what was some because you did act here and there. Like, I mean, how how did that?
0: Who was drag you know bringing you into that? Like you 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 knew the. Like you knew Christopher Guest and and those guys when they had the uh, uh, the sketch of Spinal Tap, correct? Yeah,
2: I was in Spinal Tap
0: in the, in the, the movie in, in the sketch in the sketch.
2: It was in a Rob Reiner uh, a TV special called The TV Show. Martin Mull was in it, uh-huh. and and, uh, and uh, Harry Shearer was in it, uh-huh. and and the, they they came up with this sketch about a heavy metal band. I was the keyboard player. <laughs> right. You can see me on YouTube. Oh yeah, it, in a wig. Yeah. yeah. So so
0: you always sort of were these were your close friends so you were sort of you know in proximity to comedy all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You're always kind of like around. Yeah. And when you met when you met those guys you okay you went to college with some of them but but you you met uh you
2: saw like in the in the city like you you were there pre SNL, right? Yeah, when I met when I met I met Chris when he was in this thing called Lemmings. Oh, the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Right. Thing? Yeah. And so that was pre, you know, on Belushi and Chevy Chase, and and this was uh, two years before Saturday Night Live. And you saw that perform live? Yeah. Where did
0: they perform that? Like the, bot- at, the
2: at the Village Vanguard. Which oh, really? Was on Bleecker Street. Yeah, sure, sure. It was great. It was amazing. It was incredible. That
0: was the, like the Dark uh, Festival, the yeah. the rock festival. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was the satirical right. answer to Woodstock.
2: That's right, where they all would just go off the edge of the cliff.
0: Right. So you saw Belushi as the young crazy. Yeah, he,
2: I was, I think he did his Joe Cocker Right. Of course. Of right. Of course. And Chris did incredible Dylan and the wonderful actress who's no longer alive, Alice Platon, was in it. And yeah. Gary Goodrow and. A lot of great, and Chevy, a lot of great people. And you
0: did you did SNL early on, too, right? I was
2: in the first season. I was in the third show. Robert Klein was the host. Yeah. And the other musical act was ABBA. Really? And nobody knew who they were. They had just won the Eurovision Song Contest. And they they were the only group, I, I'm told, yeah. that ever lip-sank on Saturday Night Live. That first time? They did it then, and in, in Lauren... Decided that would never happen again.
0: Was there chaos at the show? Was it everyone excited? Was there like a, like I can't imagine that first season because it, it was more of a variety show and there was a it didn't it, it, they had fil- short films and you know more. No, songs. it was
2: great. It was you know with the, all the original cast. Yeah, you know, I remember the the party after the show we did. Everybody oh yeah, it was talking about things. And yeah, going off to the bathroom every once in a while. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> What was that Did you do Carson or any of those shows? I did I did Carson uh, yeah. twice. Uh, once with Johnny and once with Doc Severinson. Guest hosting, yeah, yeah, and I did. You know, I've done. uh, I did the Mike Douglas show. Are you old enough to remember that? I used to watch it after school. They sit around
0: the half circle, right? Yeah, I did.
2: I did a lot of Mike Douglas shows. Oh yeah, I did Merv Griffin.
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Shows I have done. Yeah, just but sitting there with guys like to me, you know, like I I, like thinking back on those talents, you know, at that time, it just everything seemed to be more like a community. Yeah. Yeah, like everybody seemed to know each other. Is that, was, am I making that up or do you feel that too? Like you're sitting out there like on, a, on a, like a Merv Griffin show and there'd be some comic there and some other
2: guy there. But yeah, show business felt small I, to me. I think it was a little looser, maybe. Uh huh. You know, and I don't think that people were. But, right. but there were egos flying around and, sure. and, and, and crap and bullshit. But, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I you know, and, and uh, it was a long time ago. How'd you do MASH? How'd that happen? Larry Gelbhardt saw me playing at the Troubadour in LA in 73 or something yeah. and said hey how about an idea of a singing surgeon and i did three episodes of mash <laughs> that's that's fun yeah it was fun
0: and then all of a sudden you got judd uh, you know uh, putting you in everything
2: judd has been incredible
0: yeah and um what was the first thing he put you in Undec- uh, undeclared, undeclared. Yeah. yeah
2: he when he was a 14 year old kid growing up in syos at long island he yeah. saw me on that letterman show yeah then he used to come into town and see me play at the bottom line when he was a kid when well, yeah well probably well and then he was like 18 or 19
0: oh so he's been a fan a long he's time he's been a fan a long time Yeah,
2: and then I got this call about 12 years ago from and I never I didn't, had no idea who he was I had not seen Freaks and Geeks uh-huh. it was weird today I I got on a plane from this morning in New York and Martin Starr was sitting oh, next to me he's a great guy He talked about Judd and, yeah. and Freaks and Geeks and
0: all Martin Starr is an intense dude he's a good yeah. guy
2: he slept most of the way, but oh, okay. I could tell he was intense.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. intense. Yeah. So, so he puts you on Undeclared, and then he Yeah, know. and
2: then, you know, I gave me some parts and uh, some other movies, and then I wrote with Joe Henry, my friend Joe Henry. Uh, we wrote the music for Knocked Up, and uh, good stuff from Judd.
0: Yeah, and you did that cover of uh, another friend's song, right, Daughter?
2: Peter Blankvad, yes, yeah. great Who's song. that guy? That guy is a really interesting guy. He, he's uh, he's an expatriate. He's an American, but he's been living in London for almost 40 years. He was in a, a rock band in the 70s called Slap Happy. Uh-huh. And they played a lot in Europe. He's a great songwriter. He's also an amazing cartoonist and a writer and uh, hardly anybody knows. It's uh, a hell of a song. That's a hell of a song. If you Google me, the first thing that comes up is Daughter. Uh-huh so i have to always tell people that i didn't write that yeah and, well i a mean, pain in the ass but my, it's a great song
0: a, a, at least the skunk things behind you
2: yeah man not, it used to be skunk now it's daughter <laughs> you can't get a fair shake on your good shit yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah
0: <laughs> all right man well it's great talking to you the book is beautiful it's well written it, you know it's fun um and what 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 happens now are you do you tour
2: constantly I tour regularly. I'd say, yeah. you know, um, Judd and Chris are talking about maybe getting together. I have this uh, theater show called Surviving Twin, which is my uh, my songs mixed in with my dad's writing, and I've been doing that. and And so, there's some talk that we might do a film of that. So oh, that's, really? That's the next thing that hopefully will happen.
0: You really, you really are emotionally uh, burying
2: the uh, hatchet with your dad posthumously. The more you forgive, the better you feel. Yeah. That's, that, that, I just made that up just now. <laughs> a, that's I, a bumper sticker, isn't or, it? Or a song. Yeah. Okay, I'll get I'll go back. You get cracking on that.
0: Okay. Thanks, Wadden. Very nice talking to you. Okay, that was that. The book, Liner Notes, is out. Get it. Get the book. It's good. A life in music. A life in entertainment. Loudon Wainwright. Dig it. Can you... Dig it. Guitar? Guitar anyone? <clears throat>
2: where <laughs>